This is the 39th sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Greater Discourse at Asapura, the Mahapura, the Maha Asapura Sutta. And this sutta begins when the Buddha is living in a part of the Ganges Valley called the Angan country at a town of the Angans called Asapura, which I think would mean the city of horses. And the Buddha begins by addressing the monks and then he undertakes to give a discourse which is intended to explain the significance of being a summoner. The word which is rendered here is monk, monk. It's not the Pali word bhikkhu, but the word samana, which also might be rendered recluse or ascetic. And the commentary explains that the people of Asapura were extremely devoted to the Sangha. They had very strong confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and they had extraordinarily deep faith and devotion to the monks, so that they would provide the monks very lavishly with their requisites, even though they were living fairly simple lives. And even when the monks were going on their alms round, when the people were at their working places, they would stop their work to salute the monks as the monks were walking for alms. And they would even, if they had nothing on hand to provide the monks, they would make special efforts to prepare food very quickly to provide as offerings to the monks. And they praised the monks, even the novice samaneras, very, very highly and were constantly thinking about their virtues and speaking to each other about their virtues. And so the Buddha saw that there was a danger in this for those members of the Sangha who had not yet reached high level of accomplishment, that they might have gotten carried away by this, the praise and devotion of their lay supporters and fell to properly fulfill the duties that were incumbent upon them as monks. And so the Buddha delivered this discourse as a very sharp reminder to the bhikkhus of their religious obligations to live up to the devotion and faith that their supporters were placing in them. And he makes the theme of his discourse the notion of being a samana, an ascetic, a recluse.
at the time of the Buddha, those people who were devoting themselves to a life of religious observance and practice fell into two groups. One group are called the Samanas and the other group the Brahmanas. The difference between them can be explained briefly as follows. The Brahmanas based their philosophies and their practices upon the ancient Indian scriptures called the Vedas. They believed that the Vedas were divinely revealed truth, eternal truth, the eternal scriptures. And they accepted this as the foundation of their belief, their belief system and practice. And generally the Brahmanas were concerned primarily with ritual and sacrifice. The ancient Brahmanic texts prescribe various types of sacrifices, including the sacrifice of animals. And by the time of the Buddha, the Brahmins were often in the employment of kings and princes and rulers and they would function as the religious advisors to the kings. They would arrange ceremonies, rituals, sacrifices of animals and the kings and princes would pay them very lavishly. And so many of the Brahmins came to be living quite luxurious lives and had become just like religious functionaries. Almost any kind of seeking of spiritual realization or truth had faded into the background and they were just living quite worldly lives, comfortably supported by the ruling class. But there were other Brahmins who retained the old ideals of the Vedas. These Brahmins specialized in memorization of the Vedic texts, in teaching their pupils the mantras and sacred rituals, and they cherished very high spiritual ideals. But according to the injunctions of the Brahminic texts, the Brahmins almost invariably would marry and live in households and raise families. In contrast to the Brahmins, there was another community, or we could say a sect of communities, of spiritual seekers who are called Samanas or in Sanskrit Shamanas. The Samanas did not recognize the authority of the Vedas. For that reason from the viewpoint of the Brahmins they were heterodox or even to some extent heretical. 
the leaders of the different Samana groups devise their own philosophies based in some cases upon reasoning and logic, in some cases upon their own meditative experience. The Samanas may have been in existence even for hundreds of years before the Buddha appeared on the Indian scene. In fact, when the Buddha was still a bodhisattva, a seeker of enlightenment, when he left the palace and entered the forest to find the way to enlightenment, his first course of action was to seek out two of the leading summoners of the period. One was Alara Kalama and the other Uttaka Ramabhuta, both of whose teachings he temporarily accepted and practiced, but rejected when he found that they did not lead to enlightenment. Also, unlike the Brahmins, the Samanas were not very much concerned with ritualism and with ceremony. Their primary mode of practice was asceticism, in some cases leading to meditative practice. And so when we read in the we read in many of the suttas about the types of practices undertaken by the summoners, this would include fasting, going about naked or with just a loincloth, subjecting themselves to different types of self-mortification, going naked during the cold season, exposing them to themselves to the sun during the hot season. These practices were undertaken in the belief that the way to liberation, <coughs> to the higher wisdom, consisted in the mortification of the body. Now when the Buddha established himself as a spiritual teacher, he belonged to the community of the Samanas. And that's why when others spoke about the Buddha, those who were not his own followers, they always refer to him as the Samana Gotama, the recluse Gotama, the ascetic Gotama. And the Buddha used the word Samana also in reference to his own disciples. He taught them that they should consider themselves to be Samanas. And using that title, implied a certain ideal for which they should strive. By becoming a Samana, the implication was that one has separated oneself from the worldly life, the life of seeking enjoyment and the perpetuation of the species by bringing up and generating a family. 
by becoming a samana, one has devoted one's life to liberation and the realization of truth. But the Buddha also appropriated for himself and his followers the other term Brahman or Brahmana. He called himself a Brahman and told his monk disciples that they should strive to fulfill the ideal of Brahmani. This didn't mean that he was telling them that they should go study the Vedas and perform sacrifices and raise families to enter the royal service, but rather the Buddha was hearkening back to the original significance of the word Brahmana or perhaps giving it a new significance derived from his own teaching. The word Brahmana at the time of the Buddha still had the aura, we could say, of the term meaning holy man or holy person. And so if somebody was called a Brahmana, in theory it would mean that he's a holy man, even though he will be in his actual mode of life very far from any ideal of holiness. He might be living quite comfortably, well supported by the king with huge estates, many servants and slaves with herds of cattle, but still, even at that time, within the word Brahmana, there were still vague echoes of its original meaning, holy man. And so the Buddha took over this word Brahmana and tried to infuse into it a new meaning which suggested its oldest meaning. The Buddha used the word Brahmana in effect as a synonym or an alternative word for an Arahant. And thus in the Dhammapada there is a whole chapter, the last chapter, on the Brahmana in which the Buddha says that one is not a Brahmin by birth, by one's caste status, as the Vedic Brahmins were, but one is a Brahmin, a true Brahmin, by one's spiritual achievement. And the real Brahmin, according to the Buddha, is the one who has achieved the complete destruction of the kilesas, the defilements. So in this sutta, the Buddha undertakes to explain the meaning, what it means to be calling oneself a samana, what it means to be recognized by others as a samana. So he begins by addressing the monks and he says, samanas, 
summoners. That is how people perceive you. And when people ask you, what are you? What is your profession? What is your way of life? You claim we are summoners. I am a summoner. And since that is what you are designated and what you claim to be, you should train thus. We will undertake and practice those things that make one a samana, that make one a brahman, so that our designations may be true and our claims genuine, and so that the services of those whose robes, alms food, resting place, and medicinal requisites we use shall bring them great fruit and great benefit, and so that our going forth shall not be in vain, but <coughs> fruitful and fertile. It's a very stirring way to open this sutta. And it's interesting that if we look into this passage, we see in this passage the Buddha is upholding or emphasizing the responsibility of the monks to fulfill two types of good or two types of benefit. These two types of benefit are repeatedly emphasized by the Buddha throughout his teaching. One is the benefit of oneself, one's own personal benefit, and the other is the benefit of others, the good of others. And so when the Buddha says that you should undertake the practices that make one a recluse, that make one an ascetic, so that one's going forth shall be fruitful and fertile, here he is referring to one's own benefit, so that one achieves one's own aim in going forth into homelessness. But here the Buddha also says that one should fulfill these practices so that the services of those who make offerings of robes, alms food, lodgings, and so on, so that these services will bring them great fruit and benefit. For that purpose, that is for the good of others, one should fulfill the steps of the training. And according to the teaching of the Buddha, the acts of merit or acts of giving that are performed 
to those who have left the household life bring benefits or fruitful fruits partly independent upon independence upon the volition or intention of the giver and in part upon the moral qualities of the receiver so if a person who is making a gift to a monk or a religious person gives this gift casually and casually thoughtlessly without special respect without special faith or confidence just following convention or in order to impress others or to maintain a family tradition in that case the intention of giving is virtuous and wholesome and meritorious to some extent but because that meritorious chaitanya of giving is darkened by other mental factors it's not so fruitful and not so beneficial also if the person when giving gives reluctantly or with regrets about what they're giving or if they give things which are not of fine quality things which they w- want to discard and rather than just throw them away they think that they will give them as offerings to religious people and in that way they'll get higher merit from it so because the volition of giving is counteracted to some extent by these regrets by these qualifications by these inhibitions the chaitanya or volition is not greatly fruitful not highly meritorious so of course it is meritorious since it is an act of giving okay so one contributing factor to the to the quality of the merit is the chaitanya the volition the state of mind of the giver if the giver gives with faith strong faith strong devotion and gives carefully and respectfully and gives things of good quality and gives without any regret without any remorse or feeling of inhibition then the chaitanya becomes very powerful and very fruitful and meritorious so in that way the volition of the giver is a crucial factor in the generation of merit but also the personal qualities of the recipient also affect the quality of the merit or the degree and let's say quantity of the merit so if a person gives a gift 
just to an ordinary, say, an ordinary person, then the merit will be limited by the qualities of that person, by the limited virtues of that person. Whereas if a person, a donor, gives a gift to a recipient who has highly meritorious qualities, great virtues, then the merit of that gift will be multiplied by reason of the virtues of the recipient. And in that way, when making gifts to people who are leading religious lives, the value the, or the potency, the meritorious potency of the gift increases step by step as a person is giving to a virtuous worldling who's living a noble life in accordance with the Buddha's path. Then it becomes much higher when giving to an Aryan Pugala, one who has reached the stage of stream entry, then even more so when giving to a once-returner, then when giving to a anagami and non-returner, and then when giving to an arahant, then one is giving to the supreme recipient of offerings, the supreme field of merit for the world. And so the Buddha in this passage is telling his disciples, first, that they should seek to fulfill the qualities of recluseship, of the ascetic life, in the first place so that they will live up to the designation of ascetic, of recluse. In the second place, so that they will promote the good of others by making the gifts that others offer to them highly fruitful and beneficial to them. And third, so that they're going forth, they're entering upon the religious life as monks will not be wasted but will be fruitful and fertile. In other words, so that their going forth will become a means for them to reach the supreme attainment, that is the attainment of liberation of arahatship. Okay, now having opened the teaching with that piece of inspiring advice to the monks, the Buddha is now going to show step by step the things that make one a true samana, a true recluse, a true brahmana, a true holy man. And he starts right at the very beginning and he will proceed step by step through the entire training 
all the way up to its culmination in the supreme goal. And he starts with two factors that are the very foundation even of the moral life itself, not to mention anything beyond morality. He says we're in paragraph three now. And what bhikkhus are the things that make one a samana, that make one a brahmana? You should train thus. We will be possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing. So these two qualities are called in Pali Hiri and Okappa. And when we meet them in the text, the two are all, almost always mentioned together. And these two are like the two foundations or two supporting bases of all morality, of all ethical discipline. And though the two are always joined together, they have different and complementary qualities. Hiri, or shame, is a quality which arises from within and reflects back within oneself. That's why it's called shame. Whereas otappa, which comes from a root tap, meaning to burn, <coughs> is a quality which is based upon external consideration and reflects outward upon the world. That's why it's called fear of wrongdoing. Now what is shame exactly and what is fear of wrongdoing? Shame or hiri is the hesitation or reluctance to do anything wrong or immoral because to do so would be in some way one's sense of one's own inner dignity it's the feeling that by engaging in immoral action, one would be spoiling one's own character, degrading one's own character.
And so shame is not, despite the English word shame, I'll use the Pali word, hiri, it's not the feeling that one is going to be ashamed in front of others, but rather it's the purely internal sense that by engaging in some immoral action, one will be staining and soiling one's own, the beauty of one's own character. Otapa, on the other hand, is fear of wrongdoing, which means fear of the undesirable consequences of wrongdoing. And this could be understood perhaps in two ways. Fear that if others learn that one has engaged in some wrong action, that others will hold a bad opinion about, about oneself and that others will speak critically about you. And also it would signify fear of the karmic consequences of wrongdoing. Fear that by engaging in some immoral action one is going to accumulate unwholesome karma which will bring suffering as its result. <clears throat> and so these two qualities function together in order to restrain a person from engaging in immoral action. That's why the Buddhist texts say that Hiri and Otapa are the supporting condition for virtuous actions, for kusala karma, or for kusala sila, for wholesome morality. And the Buddha refers to these two qualities together as the guardians of the world. He calls them the loka pala, the guardians or protectors of the world. And he says that if it were not for these two qualities, the world would just fall into moral <coughs> chaos that the human race itself would become indistinguishable in its behavior from animals. He says it's because of Hiri and Otapa that human beings have some sense of restraint and moral dignity which lifts them above the level of the animals. But if these two qualities did not exist in the world, then there would be just, even the concept of incest would not exist, but the behavior of humans would just be like the behavior of dogs. Brothers with couple with sisters, sons with mothers, fathers with daughters, children with uncles and aunts, and there would just be 
all morality would just utterly collapse without these two two qualities. And the commentaries illustrate the relationship of these two qualities, shame and fear of wrongdoing. They give the illustration of a piece of metal, an iron bar, which at one end is smeared with excrement and on the other end the bar of metal has been heated until it's red hot. Then if a person comes along and he needs a piece of metal for some purpose, when he sees this metal bar, then he will not want to touch (laughs) the section which has been smeared with excrement because he doesn't want to get soiled with the foul smell. That is like hiri or shame. The person doesn't want to defile his character by engaging in some wrong action. And the person who needs the piece of metal doesn't want to touch the part of the bar that has been heated till it's red hot because he's afraid that he'll get burned. That illustrates otapa. A person doesn't want to engage in immoral action from fear of the consequences, the painful consequences of that action. Okay, and so the Buddha begins this discourse by enjoining his disciples to train themselves to acquire shame and fear of wrongdoing. And for someone who has no shame, no fear of wrongdoing, it's impossible even to make any further progress in the practice. But once a person acquires a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing, then the Buddha says, You may think, now I am possessed of shame and fear of wrongdoing. That much is enough. That much has been done. The goal of monkhood, or the goal of the ascetic life, has been reached. There is nothing more for us to do. And you may rest content with that much. That is, once a person acquires the basic necessary conditions for a moral life, they might think, now I'm satisfied, now I've accomplished a great deal and I can be satisfied with that. Now I've reached the goal of the religious life. But the Buddha says, and the words he uses are very strong. He says, because I inform you, I declare to you, you who seek the status of a monk, 
the status of a true ascetic. Do not fall short of the goal of monkhood while there is still more to be done. That is, he's making the point very plainly that when one acquires Hiri and Otapa, one is not yet anywhere near the goal of the monk's life, the ascetic life. And he enjoins the monks, go on further, go on to the next step in order to reach the stature of a true recluse. Now, paragraph four. What more is to be done? Because you should train thus. Our bodily conduct shall be purified, clear and open, flawless and restrained and we will not laud ourselves and disparage others on account of that purified bodily conduct. Okay, we we can say that the first section in which the Buddha opens the things that make one an ascetic, shame and fear of wrongdoing, we can say that this is the basis or foundation for the entire practice. So it's especially said to be the foundation for morality or discipline. Then the next four factors that the Buddha will mention constitute sila, morality or virtue. And he opens with purified bodily conduct. And I think it's very, the way the Buddha describes this in this very concise passage, it's very impressive in that he manages to suggest so much with just by using a few very carefully chosen words that our bodily conduct shall be purified, clear and open, which means that the conduct should not have to be something which is hidden and concealed. This seems to be the practice amongst many of the gurus who go teaching, especially the, I have to say, the Indian gurus who go teaching (laughs) in the West, when they're amongst their followers, they show themselves as being very holy and saintly people. (laughs) But then they have secret passages (laughs) that lead to their inner chamber and only specially chosen disciples, usually for the male teachers, female disciples, 
are allowed to come through that passage and they may behave one way during the day and quite differently at night and there are even some gurus like there's a late Bhagavan Rajneesh who in the United States he would be surrounded with bodyguards with machine guns but the Buddha says of himself that his conduct is completely purified and there is nothing to be guarded or hidden concealed in his conduct and when he teaches his disciples also he says that the conduct should be clear and open as they teach or as they preach in that way they should behave and as they behave in that way they should teach so the conduct should be clear and open and it should be flawless and restrained by flawless the Buddha is holding up very high ideal that it's not enough just generally to be good but he says that having undertaken the training rules one should fulfill them completely seeing danger in the slightest fault so one should fulfill the principles of training completely without any flaws or defects or shortcomings and the conduct should be restrained that is restraining even the mental tendency towards transgression and to this characterization of the bodily conduct he adds a very important proviso we will not laud ourselves praise ourselves and disparage others on account of that purified bodily conduct that is one should not think that I am pure in my conduct I am virtuous and who are not observing the same precepts that I'm observing they are of corrupt virtue they are morally depraved even if one sees others who are behaving in immoral ways one should recognize their misbehavior but one should not in one's own mind extol oneself and denigrate others and also by speech one should not praise oneself or one's own community and denigrate others condemning them and disparaging them on account of their um, impure conduct. 
And here the Buddha does not go into a detailed explanation of what the bodily conduct, the purified bodily conduct consists in, but just in from general, from the other suttas, we can know the basic principles of the discipline of the monk that he teaches. Some of the basic principles of purified bodily conduct will be not killing any living being and for those who are taken, especially the monastic precepts, not even harming or injuring any being in any way. The commentary gives an example which I think is a little too extreme. It says that if the monk is eating alms food and the crow comes to his alms bowl and starts eating out of the alms bowl, he shouldn't even push it away. <laughs> so I think that's too extreme. <laughs> okay, so not harming or injuring any living being. Not stealing or taking anything that belongs to anybody else. And for a monk observing complete celibacy, not taking any intoxicants, then there will be other principles of purified bodily conduct, especially for monks not eating after noon, not dancing, I guess singing might be <laughs> under verbal misconduct, um, not singing, uh, not dancing, participating in shows or watching shows, and not putting on ornamentation or cosmetics, and so forth. Okay, I think we'll stop at this point and we'll continue with the rest next week. Are there any questions on anything that has come up? I have one question on uh, shame and fear from the Yeah. Um, something that we have since first, by birth. Excuse me? Is it something that we have since first, or by the birth, or is it something you know, especially from the mother? I would say that these qualities are to some extent part of one's, we would say, part of one's karmic inheritance, qualities that one, that one has developed to some extent from in previous lives. And so the basic tendencies will be ingrained quite deeply in some people as they come to maturity, even apart from instruction by others. On the other hand, there is the influence of one's parents, one's society, which I guess in a good family and in a good morally upright society will tend to encourage these qualities of the sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing.
But the fact is that some people who are brought up even in a rough society will still have innate dispositions towards shame, a sense of shame and fear of wrongdoing. And in that case, we could speculate that they had developed these qualities in a, in a previous existence and thus they bring those qualities to this new existence. On the other hand, some people will be brought up in quite upright families in a good society and yet they will be completely reckless and immoral in their behavior. In that case, we could speculate that in earlier existences they had not cultivated those qualities and so through some karmic connection they've gotten a rebirth into this family and thus their behavior it's a working out of previous karmic tendencies. Giving, when you get merit for giving dance, yeah. now, how do you get merit to giving Buddha Puja? <laughs> yeah, there's a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya towards the end of the Majjhima Nikaya it's called the Dakina Vibhanga Sutta where the Buddha speaks about the different grades of merit that come, in, come from making offerings and first he speaks about the merit of making in offerings to individuals and then the merit of making offerings to the Sangha and he says that the highest type of merit comes from making offerings to a Buddha Pamukkha Ubatto Sangha, that is, both a Sangha of both bhikkhus and bhikkhunis headed by the Buddha, with the Buddha at the head. And then there are lesser degrees of merit when making offerings to a Sangha in which the Buddha is not present. Okay, so the way the Buddha spoke the sutta, it seems that the prospect of making an offering to the Buddha, uh, an offering to the Sangha with the Buddha at the head, is possible only while the Buddha is still alive. <laughs> and once the Buddha passes away, then that possibility is out of the picture. But I think it is in the commentary it says that even after the Buddha's, it might be a later commentarial text, not one of Buddha Gosa's commentaries, that even after the Buddha has passed away, it's still possible to make a, an offering to the Buddha Pamukkan Sangha. That is, one invites a community, a group of monks to the, if possible, both monks and nuns to the dana offering and one sets up a Buddha Patima or Buddha Rupa at the head of the at the head of the table or the head of the or some place in the room and then one makes an offering of the food including the Buddha in the, the recitation and in that way it's considered that one is making the offering to the Sangha with the Buddha at the head and though, I mean, I don't know whether it would fully count according to the criterion that the Buddha has laid out, but if this is a common practice, at any rate, one is, in one's imagination, one is thinking that the Buddha is present in this community, and so one is, I would say that one is gener generating a meritorious 
state of mind by wishing to make that offering to the, to the Buddha. So I would say that those who have been accustomed to practice in that way should continue to do so. I didn't actually check the Pali text before I... I would have to check the text. Restraint, I think, is Sangbhutan. It would be Sangbhutan. Lawless. I would have to check the, the actual Pali text. You need to but it's still an act of giving and it's a giving to a human being and so it would still be the virtuous or the meritorious chaitana of giving and so there would definitely be merit in that act of giving yeah. Well, there it would refer to seeing members of the Sangha within the Buddha. Yes. Yeah, that matter is not really discussed in the text quite in those terms. Yeah. I would say that the amount of merit depends to a great extent on the presence of compassion in that act of giving. And so if a person is in a state of severe need and one gives to that person out of a strong sense of compassionate concern for that person, then I would say that the degree of merit in the volition of giving is intensified by that compassion. But also I, I should say that when practicing giving, one's concern should not only be on how much merit I'm getting from the act of giving. <laughs> so even if the, the merit is less than giving to a, a beggar or a poor person who's in a state of need, one should consider other things besides the amount of merit that one is going to get from the, from the giving, but consider the amount of suffering that is going to be alleviated by that act of giving. So if giving a television set to a monastery, <laughs> thinking that the virtuous monks will become a very fruitful field of merit for me to get <laughs> a lot of an enormous quantity of merit that will get me a place in a heaven in the next life. Whereas giving urgently needed a medical assistance to some poor people is going to get me only a little bit of merit that won't get me a place in heaven in the next life. 
one should consider that there might be more important things than the amount of merit one is going to acquire by one's active giving. That is the suffering that is going to be alleviated by the practice of giving. I don't remember that section. <laughs> Okay, I think we'll have to stop for the evening. Next week we do have a class. There's no holiday. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.